So did you mean that? Good, because you'll need it for the sermon this morning. Um, you, you all know that I'm just a guy, right? Um, and so you're free to disagree with me. We've been preaching through the stories Jesus told, the parables. And I've never actually heard a sermon on this parable that we're preaching on today. And I've never preached on it. But one kind of like it back in September. Uh, but uh, you're, you're free to, to disagree with me, but, but maybe you'll, you'll agree with, with God. So let's pray and ask for that to happen, okay? Lord God, we ask that you would help us to preach. Uh, and Lord God, I pray that you would help us to trust you. And I thank you, Lord, that you can take just a guy and speak your word through the guy. But Holy Spirit, would you guard hearts in this room from anything that would uh, not be of you? Uh, and would you apply yourself, um, Lord, wherever the truth comes out? And Father, I pray that you would help us to trust. It's just kind of a weird thing, Lord, that um, we're hitting this parable on Valentine's Day. I didn't plan it out that way, but maybe you did. So it's in your name that we pray and that we ask you to help us to preach. Amen. All suffering is the violation of your will. And so we all suffer violence, earthquakes, tsunamis, destruction, death, and we suffer violence. Men break into homes beat people, molest people, con men, bind people to contracts and extort the weak and the vulnerable. We suffer physical violence, emotional violence, corporate violence, even spiritual violence. So we've all been violated. And we all wonder, well, what does it mean? We live in a violent world. And into that world, Jesus speaks the gospel. In, in Luke 6, which uh, Carl preached on really well last week, in Luke 6, Jesus says this, Love your enemies, and if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Some call that the gospel of nonviolence, but that's where it gets a bit confusing because God doesn't always seem to be so nonviolent. People think that's what I'm saying when I preach that God is love, that he's non-violent, that he would never violate your will. But just telling you to love your enemies kind of already violates your will, doesn't it? Because you didn't want him to, to say that. Well, in the Old Testament, he certainly seems to violate our will. In the Old Testament, he seems pretty violent. And so in the second century AD, a guy named Marcion uh, taught that that Old Testament God was a different God than the New Testament God. That the violence isn't only in the Old Testament. The violence is also in the New Testament. I mean, maybe it's like is the New Testament. Maybe you've seen that movie. It's a little bit violent. And now you may say, well, that wasn't God's will, but our will. And you know, if, if you say that, you're, you're on to something. And yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus sweat great drops of blood, he, played, he prayed this, nevertheless, not my will, 
but but thy will. Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, this is a profound mystery, but in the garden, Jesus, who all his life had willed just what his father willed, in the garden of Gethsemane, in the garden, Jesus had a different will than his father's will, God's will, right? Because he said, not my will, but, but thy will. He had a different will than his father's will, and God violated that will, yet Jesus surrendered that will to God's will on a tree in a garden, and he died. That's just incredible. But still, it's easy to think that God the Father is the violent one, and Jesus the Son is the nonviolent one. You know, he's the nice one. But today, Jesus tells a story that's a wee bit violent. Luke 16, verse 35. He says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master, their Lord, when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise steward? Economos, it means house managers, where we get our word economy. The economos uh, manages the Lord's economy. He gives his stuff away. Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delayed in his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him at an hour when he's not aware and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the unbelievers. Kind of violent, don't, don't you think? I mean, just a little bit. The Lord literally cuts the unfaithful servant in, in, in two. And it sure seems that, that the Lord in the story is also kind of like the Lord who's telling the story Jesus and the servant could be someone like like Peter the Lord literally cuts him in two and puts his portion with the unbelievers yeah verse 46 the master of that servant will come in a day when he's not looking for him and an hour when he's not aware and will cut him in two dichotomeo that's the Greek verb I love that verb it's where we get our word dichotomy and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. So is that servant beaten after he's cut in two or before he's cut in two? I would think he'd be beaten before he's cut in two because beating him after he's cut in two just doesn't seem to have any point. 
Or do you suppose, as most people suppose, that he's like beaten, cut into, sewn back together, then beaten, cut into, sewn back together, beaten, cut into, sewn back together, beaten, cut into, forever, forever, and forever, without end. Verse 47, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. That's a, that's a freaky weird verse, isn't it? But it can't be describing what most people call hell. Because, I mean, there's obviously an end to the beatings. Because some get many blows and some get few blows as if the beatings have a purpose, a telos, an end. Verse 48, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So, so catch your breath, and let's just think this one through, okay? N number one, those that haven't heard the, the law or the gospel, those to whom much has not been given, those that haven't heard and disobeyed will be beaten. This doesn't seem fair, but that's what he said. And, and two, those who have heard and disobeyed well, they'll be more severely beaten. The only ones that will not be beaten are those that never disobeyed. That is, those that have never sinned. And Scripture is clear that all have sinned. And so that would mean that all will be beaten. Only one has not sinned. The, the, the one in the movie that we just watched so severely beaten. And by the way, you guys can turn on that other speaker if you want. I didn't realize that. But so it's my fault. I'm not going to beat you or anything. <laughs> the only one that, that, is, that, 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 that wouldn't be beaten is the one that hasn't sinned, but he's the one that we just saw beaten. So, so now if you're an American evangelical like me, you think to yourself, hey, I get it. Okay, because I trust the Lord, I won't be beaten because he is beaten in my place. But Jesus didn't say that, did he? And the servants that knew the master's will and still disobeyed, which is us, still get beaten. And not only beaten, but beaten most severely. There's nothing in here about say a little prayer at the end of a pamphlet and you won't get beaten. According to this parable, all will be beaten. The pygmies in Africa that never heard the gospel will be beaten. The Presbyterians that have read all of Karl Barth's church dogmatics will be beaten. Saddam Hussein and Billy Graham both get beaten, if both have sinned. And for all we know, Billy will get more beaten because maybe Saddam didn't know the master's will when he disobeyed the master's will, but Billy knew it. Ah! Romans 2.6, God will render to each one according to his works. Okay, that's not the Old Testament, that's the New Testament. We read again. God will render to each one according to his works. We're not saved by works, but God will still render to each one according to his works. What will he render? Endless torture? Or maybe discipline? Well, it seems clear that all will be beaten. And maybe all get cut in two. Maybe you're already feeling 
a bit cut into right now. I mean, just reading this story, didn't you feel a bit cut into? You thought to yourself, hey, I got oil in my lamp. I'm excited for the Lord to return. And then you thought to yourself, but wait, crap. I'm a little stressed about that return because he calls me a steward, charged with distributing his stuff to other people. But I call his stuff my stuff, and I don't like giving it to other people. In fact, rather than giving it to other people, I like beating other people in order to, to get it. And I do think that I did get a little bit drunk last week, celebrating the fact that the Broncos just beat the Sox off the Panthers. I mean, there's a little bit of a dichotomy, though, right, in you. A little bit of a dichotomy in me. There is a self that trusts love, and God is love, and then it's like there's a self that does not trust love and doesn't want love to come back. But he's coming back. So when is he coming back? We've all been to the movies. So we know that Christ is coming back at the end of the age. But according to scripture, the end of the ages has already come upon us who believe. 1 Corinthians 10. For Christ suffered once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. Hebrews 9, Jesus is the end, and so when we meet him at the cross, we arrive at the end, or the end arrives at us. On the day he's crucified, Jesus said to the high priest, listen close to this, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. So you don't have to wait to the end to get beaten and cut in two. I mean, you might get beaten and cut into this very day. Valentine's Day. And then we think it's just a Peter boy, you picked a great parable for Valentine's Day. Yeah, sorry, I didn't, I didn't map that out. But whatever the case, all will be beaten. It seems that this Lord in the story beats the hell out of his servants. Would the Lord beat the hell out of us? Or at least arrange for the hell to be beaten out of us. Jesus doesn't say that the Lord does the actual beating. He just does the actual cutting, cutting in two. But why would God have us beaten and cut in two? What's with all the violence? What does the master want? Well, this is where the story gets really weird. I mean, the listeners in that day would expect a slave to be beaten. Uh, they would be a little surprised that a master would cut a slave in two because that's just bad use of a slave, right? They cost money. They're valuable. But they would have been unable to believe what this master wants. In fact, you may have missed it. It's so strange it didn't even register. So let's read it again. He, he says, let your waist, osphus, your loins, be girded and your lamps burning. Now that ought to remind you of a story that Jesus tells in, in, in Matthew a similar story that, that we preached on in September. He, he says, let your loins be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed, happy are those servants, those doulos, slaves, whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat. Anaclino is the verb. It means recline. He literally just says he will recline them and will come serve them. 
And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so, well, blessed, happy are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house, um, the oikodespot, I love that word, oikodespot, it means house despot, king of the house, ruler of the house. If the house despot had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed for his house to be broken into, uh, I guess by the, the, the master. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. And then Peter said to him, Lord, are you talking um, about us, only us, or are you talking to all people? And the Lord said, who then, who then is the faithful and wise steward, oikonomos, means house manager, whom his master, his Lord, will make Lord over his household to give him their portion of food in due season. Happy is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Wow. So what does this master want? He wants his servants to want him, keep the oil in their lamps so that he can serve them as if he was their helper so that he can make them master over all his stuff, so that he can make them in his image. Well, maybe that's been the master's purpose ever since Genesis chapter one. Let us make man in our own image and likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. You know, if you really had dominion over all creation, you could like say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the heart of the sea. And it would do it. It would do your will. It would do your word. You could say to the storm, stop. And the storm would stop. You could walk on water and you could raise the dead. Your will would be entirely free. Your will would be entirely free. But unless you agreed with another's will, you would be entirely alone. Why? Well, because your mountains would crash into each other, right? In other words, you wouldn't be free to love. Well, the Lord wanted Adam to be made in his image, to exercise dominion in freedom, and he wanted to be Adam's help, his helper. He wanted Adam to want him. Jesus says, blessed, happy are the servants that wait or want the master. Truly the master will gird himself, literally recline them, and come serve them. You know, in John chapter 13, Jesus literally does that. It's at the supper on the night he's betrayed, knowing that his father had given all things into his hands, he rose from supper, he took off his garments, and he girded his loins with a towel. Then taking the position of a slave, he began to wash the disciples' feet and then dry them with that towel. And when he got to Peter, remember who he's talking to in this story, do you remember what Peter did? He protested. He said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. See, Peter had an ego. And his ego wouldn't allow Jesus to wash his feet. When you truly let the Lord serve you, it annihilates your ego. 
Well, it was that night as Jesus was beaten that Peter's ego was beaten. And when Jesus looked at Peter, just his gaze cut Peter in two. Then Jesus appointed Peter ruler of his house, his church, that they would rule together. So anyway, what does the master want? Number one, he wants us to want him. Number two, he wants us to let him serve us. And he serves us, right? That night he served them. What did he serve them? His body broken and his blood shed. He is our helper. Number three, he wants us to rule as he rules, to love in freedom. And number four, he wants to make us in his own image. You know, in my better moments, that is pretty much exactly what I want from my kids. And now everything's okay, so I don't want you to stress about what I'm about to say. I, I, just, I just want you to listen. <clears throat> Late one night, many years ago, a man broke into my daughter's room. He hit her. He held her down. In violation of her will, as she kicked and she screamed, she kicked and she screamed until she lost consciousness, and then thankfully, he left. We live in a violent world, and what does it mean? My daughter can't remember the incident, and yet I was traumatized by it for, for years, because you see, I was that man. I broke into her room. Actually, it wasn't her room. It was my room in my house. But sometimes when Elizabeth was two, she thought she owned the house. She thought she was literally the oikodespot, the despot, the ruler, the, the king of the house. And so she viewed me, her dad, as a thief. So I was the one who broke in and violated her will. See, just who it is that's being violent and why they're being violent really makes a difference. I was the one that broke in and violated her will because her will was hell. It had created hell. It was, it was Elizabeth had a very strong will, and it was sometimes a bad will. One day, she was so angry at Susan, for God knows why, but Susan was vacuuming. She bent over to fix the bathroom, back, uh, the, the vacuum, and Elizabeth uh, snuck up from behind and bit Susan in the behind. <clears throat> bit her so hard, it left bloody teeth marks in Susan's behind. And then Susan spanked Elizabeth's behind against her will. She disciplined Elizabeth and so violated Elizabeth's will. Sometimes Elizabeth would get so angry that she'd literally be just a danger to herself, a danger to us. She'd start going into this rage where she'd beat her brother, slam her head against the, the doorknob, and so it happened. It did happen. It happened on about three occasions when the scolding didn't work, the spankings didn't work, and she was totally out of control. I, I marched into her room. I picked her up. I held her down on the bed, and then as she kicked and she screamed, I just laid on top of her till she passed out in exhaustion. 
that night, each of those nights, I'd be a basket case. I would literally lie awake, rehearsing what I would say to her counselor in 20 years when she recounted <laughs> the abuse. But in the morning, after 10 hours of a deep sleep, she'd come running into the kitchen, all bubbly, and she'd yell, hi, daddy, and then she'd run, come sit up on my lap and cover me with kisses. It was like something in her little heart knew. When I lose control, my daddy will not lose control of me. And I love him. I don't think I violate Elizabeth's will anymore. That's because my will and her will are basically the same. She's, she's an adult. See, just look at that. She's exercising dominion <laughs> over, over creation. She's, she's an adult. We're both adults. Or, or maybe we're both children in our father's house. Are you an adult or a child? You know, a spoiled child is a child that thinks they're an adult. A spoiled child is a child that has not been disciplined. A spoiled child is addicted to gifts and can no longer love the giver of those gifts. A spoiled child takes the good and can no longer surrender to the one who is good. A spoiled child thinks he or she can possess love and so can't surrender to love and no love. A spoiled child wills what he or she wants but can no longer want what he or she wills. They're never satisfied. A spoiled child wills to be free, but is enslaved to his own will. If you think you're an adult, if you think you have rights and that you deserve respect, but you feel kind of alone and very afraid and find yourself to be easily offended, I bet you're a spoiled child. Maybe every adult that thinks they're an adult is a spoiled child. You know, I've heard people say, I know that, I know that we have free will. And so I know that God would never violate my will. Well, I hope God violates my will. Because I think my will is sin. And sin is hell. I hope he crucifies my will and gives me a, a new will, a, a free will. A spoiled child wills his own hell. He wills to be the absolute and sole ruler of his own empty house. And so he desperately needs someone to violate that will. See, it's not your will that saves you. I think it's your will that damned you. It's God's will that saves you from your own will. In other words, it's grace that saves you from sin. And sometimes grace takes the form of discipline. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. I think, that, I think that's discipline. If you never discipline a child, you condemn that child to a miserable and terribly lonely existence. Proverbs 23, verse 13, the most politically incorrect verse in the Bible, and now I'm going to read it. 
Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. If you beat him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Maybe that's because his soul has become Sheol. So unless you lose your soul, your psyche, your life, you'll never find it. And now, please, let me clarify this. I have never beat any of my kids with a rod. In our culture, I think that is abuse. Nothing is as disturbing as child abuse, yet nothing is as comforting as the discipline of love. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, writes King David. He he leads me beside the still waters. He reclines my soul. He reclines me in green pastures. Thy rod, that's discipline, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, they comfort me, they, they, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. His house, my house, my house, his house. The author of Hebrews quotes Proverbs, writing, to Christians being beaten and abused by governing authorities. So now we're no longer talking about a two-year-old being disciplined for biting her mom's bottom, but grown Christians being martyred. Hebrews 12, verse six. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so get the picture, these folks are being beaten and abused by evil people, but actually they're being disciplined by the Lord of love, their father. Verse eight, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. There's a nasty word for that, and not sons. Verse 10, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. His holiness is a great banquet called love. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's faith to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, this is what it means. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Do you see Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying? At times, you may be beaten and abused and violated by this world, but you already knew that, right? At times, you may be abused and violated by this world, but you are always being disciplined by love. See, that's not bad news. (coughs) That's the very best news. I mean, you already knew you suffered, right? I'm not telling you anything new here about the suffering. You already knew that. You already knew you suffered. You already knew that you were getting beat up, but you've wondered, why am I getting beat up? And who is it that's responsible for the beating? When you were younger, you thought you could stop it. If you're my age, you realize, I just can't stop it. Maybe I can change it, I can adjust it, but the tribulations will still come. It's like the beatings will still come. I mean, maybe you thought it was the Democrats. Maybe you thought it was the Republicans. Maybe you thought it was the liberals or the conservatives or the Syrians or the Presbyterians or maybe your dad or maybe your mom or maybe some abuser who did unspeakable things to you. Maybe the devil himself. And don't get me wrong. 
they may intend it for evil and what they did may have been absolute evil and you should fight it, you should report it, you should never surrender to it, but the Lord is not it. He's using it that you would surrender to him. Joseph said they may have intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. God does not will evil, but he intends for each of us to battle evil and surrender to the good. The Lord works all things together for good, particularly the beatings. If the Lord doesn't beat the hell out of us, well, he certainly arranges for all the beatings. If you think you're, you're grown up, you assume that your will is good and whatever violates your will is evil. But what if your will is evil? Maybe the thing that violates it is the good. See, maybe the Lord beats the hell out of us because he didn't want the hell in us. And, and what's the hell? Well, isn't it the belief that we are our own creator, our own savior, our own redeemer, our own helper? Isn't it the belief that we are the despot, the absolute ruler of our, of our lonely house? Isn't it our own arrogant refusal to surrender to love? And God is love. If God is beating the hell out of you, it's only to create his heaven within you. It's discipline. I know I know what some of you are thinking, but Peter, this doesn't feel like discipline. Ask any two-year-old being disciplined. It never feels like discipline. <laughs> but this doesn't feel like discipline. And if it continues, I could die. Yeah. In fact, you will. Death is the final violation of your will. And maybe you forgot. Death is discipline. He said the day you eat of it, you will die. Well, this day is that day and each of us must die. But that's not a bad thing. See, that's the lie of the evil one. That's not a bad thing. That's the very best thing. Death is discipline. So you must lose your life to find it. And you can't lose your life with your life. You can't commit suicide. You have to lose it in something greater than yourself, uh, like Jesus and his gospel. You must lose your life to find it. And that's not bad news. It's the best news. You will die to your own self-centered will and rise in his will. Climb up on his lap. Cover him with kisses, overjoyed that your house is his house. And his house is your house. You know, Hades is not for those. Sheol is not for those. Hades is not for those who have truly died. It is for those whose bodies have died, but their psyches refuse to die. They refuse to die to self. So they refuse to live in the house of love, the economy of love. Our father is love. So in this story, I don't think Jesus is describing endless torture for people that he refuses to love. I think he's describing discipline for servants that he will not stop loving. So Jesus described what, what's, what love wants and then describes love's discipline 
of those that don't want love. No, I, I can't fully explain all this because the sermon's already way too long and because I couldn't understand all of it, but I can at least point to it and say, wow, just look at this, verse 45. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two, dichotomeo, and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Literally, this is what it says. He will cut him in two and put the portion of him, his portion, with the untruthful. Truthful. His, his, it's like... You are a dichotomy. So a portion of you trusts love. That is, has faith in God. And that's not your portion. That's not your doing. That's not your creation. That's God's, that, 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 that's God's creation. God's portion. And then secondly, another portion of you, a portion of you does trust love, and a portion of you does not trust love. That is, does not have faith in God. And that's your portion. That's your doing, that lack of faith. That's your creation, um, your, your doing. You are a, a false self and a true self. You are an old man and a new man. You are your own will and God's will. A psyche, an old soul and a spirit. And the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 47, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more. You know, I bet you come to church sometimes, don't you? Feeling beaten. And so you want help. To some of you, much has been given, to others less. And so, well, you can't judge another person's beatings. You can't judge another person's discipline from the outside. You don't know what they've been given. You don't know the demons they face. You don't know the wounds they carry. And you don't know what God is turning them into. I mean, in order to make a St. Paul, well, that would probably require a lot of beatings, right? Because where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, anyway, you come feeling beat. And then you hear the word, and it cuts. You confess your sin, your old will, and you receive God's will. It's a banquet of grace. Body broken and bloodshed, Jesus. Did you know that scripture says, even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? Hebrews chapter 5. Even Jesus is disciplined. He was disciplined, though he did nothing wrong. He suffered the worst of beatings because he chose to suffer our beatings and help us surrender our sin. He chose to suffer with us. In the garden, he took on our will that he might surrender our will and give us his will, God's will. Your sin is your portion. And Jesus is God's portion his will given to you. See, I can't adequately explain all the judgments of God, but I think all our suffering is the discipline of love. And that's not bad news. That's really, really, really 
good news. It means God violates your bad will to give you his will. He violates your hell to give you his heaven. And you don't have to wait to be disciplined. You can surrender to it right now. It's how God causes us to want him. So we would surrender to his love. So that we would be made in his image and bear the fruit of his life. The fruit. See, there's one other thing that this master wants. That the Lord wants. And this is a little bit weird, but he wants communion with his bride. You know, this story appears to be a version of a story that Jesus must have told on several occasions. We preached Matthew's version in, virgin in, in, virgin or virgin in September. It was a great sermon, and it was titled, titled Foolish Virgins. Remember? You remember uh, it was about virgins who lit their lamps looking for the bridegroom. And we realized that a foolish virgin is, is one who doesn't know what the bridegroom wants. And so the bridegroom shuts her out of the wedding chamber in outer darkness, for he refuses to rape her. He refuses to violate love. I shared a story about a night long ago when I had returned unexpectedly from a trip in the wee hours of the morning and my bride thought I was a thief and so expected me to rape her. But when she heard my voice and she knew it was me, what she thought was hell suddenly turned into heaven. She surrendered to love and I filled her with my love. In that message, I said this, the great bridegroom refuses to rape us, but he will arrange for the destruction of our city. He will, for a time, shut us in outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. In the words of Hosea, he will lead us through the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. Why? To break our pride and romance us unto himself. To break our bad will and romance his good will into us. He violates our evil will, but he will not violate love. He is love. In our story, the master is returning from a marriage. Commentaries can't figure out what marriage it would be. They say, well, it can't be the marriage of the lamb because he's returning to his house. Well, his people are his house. And they say the servants can't be the bride because they're servants. They submit. You know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s when everyone was renouncing traditional marriage because it required submission. About one year ago today, these posters were everywhere. Fifty Shades of Grey, Valentine's Day. I, I read much of the first book. I think I bought it in an airport somewhere. It's about a woman who's tempted to sign a contract to submit to discipline in order to experience pleasure. It sold like over 125 million copies, largely to, to women who find the concept attractive. There, there's so much that's unbiblical about the book, primarily the idea of sex outside of the covenant or contract of marriage. There's so much wrong 
and unbiblical with the book, but the thrill of submitting your will to the will of a covenant partner who loves you more than you love yourself. Well, I don't think that's one of the things that's unbiblical with the book. <coughs> I'm old. So I figure that I'm entitled to some old man observations. <laughs> Well, this is what I have observed, and I find it just kind of fascinating that as a society, we rejected submission, and now we lust for submission. I mean, maybe we all long for someone to whom we could submit ourselves and thus lose ourselves because being stuck within and of ourselves is hell. And we just long for heaven. You know, actually, a marriage license is a contract to submit. I talked Susan into signing one 35 years ago. And it has been the cause of most of the pain in her life. <laughs> but it's also produced the greatest pleasures and joys and ecstasies and four children. I mean, we're rather old. <coughs> Sorry, I'm coughing. When I say, <coughs> rather old now. And so... Fifty Shades of Grey really isn't our thing, but there is great joy, even ecstasy, in submission. I read the plot summary on Wikipedia for the next two books. It turns out that Anastasia, which means resurrection, and Christian do sign a contract, but not the original contract. It wasn't, I guess, strong enough. They sign a marriage contract. They both submit to the discipline of love and bear the fruit of life, children. Christ is the bridegroom. And we are his bride. He won't violate love, but he will arrange all things that we will surrender to love. And he is love. Obedience is surrender to the discipline of love. And it's not bad news. It's great news. I used to hate the word obedience till I read this quote by C.S. Lewis. He writes, obedience is an erotic necessity. seen clips like that right I never saw that movie but you've seen that scene a million times in a million different movies she slaps him he holds her down they both surrender to love and they kiss now for some that's entirely terrifying because someone abused you who did not love you and so you have complete permission to forget the last half of this sermon and I'm serious but, but, for, but for most, well, you find it kind of thrilling. How come? Well, isn't it the idea that there's someone stronger than you? That truly loves you? So even if you will yourself to hell, they will violate your evil will and romance you to their heaven. They will violate your old will and they will give you a new will. It's the discipline of love and God is love. 
Now, I doubt that I explained all of that very well, but I think once upon a time I did experience it well. It was my Damascus Road experience I've told you about many times, so I'm not going to tell you all the details. It happened about 20 years ago when I was just feeling really, really, really beat up. I had told God that I was leaving the ministry because he spoke to other people. He cared about other people, but he did not speak to me. It was that day I actually heard him speak audibly. And he revealed to me, it was like I asked for this and I got it. He revealed to me that I had gone into the ministry out of anger. And it felt like he took a knife and plunged it into my chest and cut out a, a stone as I lay there on the floor weeping for hours. But it wasn't a bad thing. It was an absolutely wonderful thing because I knew I needed his surgery, heart surgery, that night during the worship service. He literally pinned me to the floor, held me down. It felt like a million volts of electricity were coursing through my body, and I could not help but praise him. For in that moment, I saw that he constantly, completely, and continuously loved me. My arms were up in praise. Remember this, my arms were up in praise, and I realized that he was holding me there, pressing me down against the floor. And then it began to feel this pressure on my arms. It felt like he was going to break my arms. And then I thought to myself, he's breaking my arms. He's breaking. God's going to break my arms. That sounds terrifying, doesn't it? But it was so terribly, terribly, terribly wonderful. And I was so terribly, terribly, terribly happy. I knew that he'd stop if I just said a word. But I didn't want to say the word. It was ecstasy. I saw that he was like everywhere in my world talking to me. And then he told me to stop doubting his love. He didn't break my arms, but I knew he could. And I knew he would if he needed to. And I think that's the most encouraging thing that's ever happened to me. Because something in my heart knew, if I lose control, my daddy will not lose control of me. Took me a few weeks to put it all together. But I realized that I always used to pray, God, I don't hear your will very well. So, you know, if I'm out of your will, would you please, would you please just break my arms? And that was the day I told him that I was leaving the ministry because he, he didn't love me or talk to me. See, God disciplined me. And I'm starting to realize he's always disciplining me. You know, every time I suffer, it's because something or someone has violated my will. But God is sovereign. And so in the end, only God violates my will. He violates my will. He breaks my will. So I would surrender to his will. And so what does it mean when you suffer violence? Well, I think it means this. It means that even though you will yourself to hell, there is someone stronger than you that wills you to heaven. And that's not a bad thing. That's the very best thing. He violates your bad will to give you a new will. His will. Jesus. And so he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, the contract in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Don't run from this. I understand why people run from this, but run to this because your Lord is love and his discipline is life. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and live. And you see, that's not bad news. That's really good news. And so why do you come here every week? Or at least some weeks. <laughs> why do we come here? Well, because we feel beat up in this world, don't we? And we realize that we need help. We come to this place and we hear the word preached. It's, it's really just a statement. It's news about who God is and what he's done. And it cuts us. It cuts us. And you realize, gosh, I have not loved my enemies. I have not distributed the Lord's things to the Lord's people. And there's so much in me that really is antithetical to him. And then you confess your sin, right? You confess your sin. You come to this table after you've cut and you give God your portion, your sin. And God gives you his portion, his grace. And you say, I kind of want to love my enemy. I kind of want to give the portion to the, uh, uh, those other people. And then you go out into the, into the world and you keep your, your lamps lit and your loins girded. He's saying, I like, I love the Lord. I want the Lord to come. I want the Lord to discipline me. I want him to, to fix me because the Lord is good and he's making me good. He's making me in his own image and he is love. And love is an endless party. So what am I saying? I'm saying surrender to the Lord's discipline. And if you're one of those people that say, yeah, but he's disciplined more than everybody else. Well, yeah, everything's bad, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know what? Maybe you're a St. Paul. Maybe you've got challenges I don't even understand. And God is revealing glories to you that I couldn't even begin to know. But you're going to tell me about them at that great banquet that lasts forever and ever and ever. And so surrender to the Lord's discipline. My, my youngest son, Coleman, he had a really strong will too. And he would get disciplined a lot. And over time, we had this green couch. And if you got disciplined, you had to go sit on the green couch. I'd walk into the living room, Coleman would just be sitting on the green couch. And then he would say, Dad, I did this and this and this, and so I'm ready for my discipline. And usually I'd look at him and go, Coleman, I, I don't want to give you discipline. Let's go have ice cream. Remember what Jesus said to Paul when, he, when Paul met him on the road to Damascus? He said, Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads. The goads are good, but it's hard to kick against them. In other words, may you believe the gospel and surrender to the gospel because it's good. In Jesus' name, amen.